0: to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. I'm Eva Monheim.
1: And I'm Hal Rosner. We are both certified arborists through the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forests, which include neighborhoods, parks, and other open spaces.
0: We will also cover a myriad of tree topics, including the important role trees play in relationship to the climate crisis. Thank you for joining us. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence monheimmicrophones.com. In 1943, founder William Green purchased McCoy Feed and Coal Company and Primex Garden Center was born. Primex Garden Center is now in its fourth generation of green family ownership. They offer a wide selection of organic and conventional garden solutions in addition to two fully stocked tropical houseplant greenhouses along with annuals, perennials, trees, and shrubs. As the gardener's resources since 1943, Primex seeks to nurture both plants and people through quality, care, compassion, and community. Making your lives greener makes theirs brighter. Primex Garden Center is located at 435 West Glenside Avenue in Glenside, Pennsylvania. This podcast is being recorded on April 14th, 2023. Steve Abner's love affair with wood began in 1981 when he started working as a carpenter in Philadelphia. After 12 years of carpentry experience, he started his own furniture shop, which led to the creation of Manionk Timber Incorporated, the premier urban sawmill in Philadelphia. Manionk Timber processes lumber reclaimed from Philadelphia industrial era factories built from the 1880s through the 1920s and local trees that are no longer viable due to disease, storms, or construction. In the 1990s, Maniunk Timber became the only Philadelphia sawmill capturing local trees instead of sending them to landfills. Steve's commitment to educating Philadelphia about the beauty and utility of wood goes beyond saving lumber. Recently, he and his team planted a 3,000-square-foot forest of native trees and shrubs, designed to mirror a Pennsylvania forest in what was previously a parking lot on the lumber mill's premises. Steve is legendary in the wood business for his vast knowledge of reclaimed and native timbers. In the last six years, he has been joined by his daughter, Rebecca, in operating Maniunk Timber. Rebecca Ebner is the manager of Maniunk Timber, bringing several years of experience in working in organic vegetable and animal farms and organizations focused on expanding access to healthy foods in Philadelphia. She joined Maniunk Timber in 2015. Over the past six years, Rebecca has learned every aspect of the business from milling and sawing lumber to furniture construction. In her current role as manager, she is responsible for activities such as coordinating customer service generating social media content, managing the showroom and assisting in overseeing the yard and with material acquisitions. Rebecca graduated from Barnard College in 2012 with a Bachelor of Arts in Urban Studies and Environmental Science. She brings a passion for urban sustainability and community engagement, a commitment to Philadelphia and an involvement in creative and artistic projects to her work with Manny Timber. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Steve and Rebecca, we're delighted that you could be with us today. Thank you.
2: Thank you.
1: We like to jump right in, guys, and just find out a little bit more about the Ebners as far as your respective backgrounds. Where did you grow up and how did you find your way to urban wood reclamation and, and
2: milling? I grew up in Philly, actually not too far from here up the boulevard at Harbison and the boulevard. Lived here a long time. And when I was very young, let's say 17, 18, I moved around the country, had different jobs, mostly in heavy industry, I would say. Worked for the railroad. or worked offshore in the oil fields. I, I did a fair amount of farm work. And then I came back to Philly around 81. And somehow I got a job with a contractor because he was building a deck in Chestnut Hill. And as soon as I touched wood, I'm there like, what is this stuff? You know, never thought much about wood until then. I built a house with my brother in the 70s, but that was mostly new construction, plywood. There wasn't much solid wood or even different species of wood I even knew about. And from that moment on, I basically knew I was onto something new, you know. And at first, it's you're trying to learn the craft. But at the same time, I was just mesmerized by wood. And it wasn't too many years later, I would say 83. I think we bought an abandoned house around 83 or 84, and and I was going to need a lot of wood. And I just started to see a lot of old wood not really being reused or reclaimed. And uh, it was very easy to get for free even, but you had to have a place to put it and machinery to handle it, especially to process it. So I didn't have none of that. So I, I actually started to look at the water tanks on top of factories, which were very easy to lift. One or two people could lift each plank and we could break them down with regular woodworking machinery. And then after that, I worked as a contractor for 10, 12 years as I rebuilt a house and started to collect more wood And around 1994, my brother and I bought a sawmill to process the larger beams and trees that I seen going to waste, basically. And then from 94 till now, the company just grew. Like around 1994, I was done with contracting and I was making more furniture. So I needed all kinds of wood that people wanted, both tree and old wood. And then I basically didn't want to really make furniture anymore. I wanted to run the sawmill. Mm-hmm. I wanted to produce the wood and let other people make stuff. Okay, that's where I'm at today.
0: That's an interesting uh, route to get to.
2: Yeah, yeah. I find it pretty unusual. I always compare it to being a cook. You know, first you start cooking, and then you say to yourself, "Huh, I wonder where they. I wonder how you make cheese." And then you start making cheese. Then you wonder, I wonder where the milk comes from. And then you go to the milk and then you say, oh, I wonder (laughs) what the cows are like. And then you're, you're back at the very beginning. You know, you're milking cows and you're letting other people make cheese. Other people make cheese products and then other people cook. So that's where I'm at now. So, Rebecca,
1: when did you enter the scene? And tell us a little bit about yourself.
3: I probably started about six years ago, but then I started before then just helping Steve with the virtual side of things. My background is mostly food oriented. I pretty much worked in like every aspect of the food industry. I did my thesis at Barnard on organic food and why people make the choice or, you know, Not.
1: So like the sustainability end of things.
3: Sustainability end of things. Yeah, I majored in environmental science and urban studies. So I was really interested in the choice that humans have to be sustainable or not. I got really into farming. I did a lot of vegetable farming mostly. I worked for Jose Garces. He had like a farm attached to his restaurants. and I worked for him for a while. Not that long, like a year, <laughs>
1: but okay.
3: But
0: it's enough to give you the experience that you know. Yeah,
3: working with yeah. those kind of people
0: just is so so different than working on a farm without having the connection to the chef.
3: Yeah, kind of relates to what Steve was saying with like you know going back to the beginning. You know why I was very curious working for restaurants. Like, where does the food come from? How does it get here? How do restaurants that source organic and sustainable food like actually get to that point? So I worked for an amazing farm in Sonoma called Green String Farm. It's in Patalumba, California. And the program sort of director is this famous guy named Bob Kennard. And he was friends with and worked with Alice Waters. And so that interest of mine definitely assisted and, like, helped with a very smooth transition to Mani Timber. Sure. You know, it, growing up with Steve and, you know, being part of it in a lot of different, um, kind of in the background, but also very much entrenched in who I am and what I care about. So, yeah, the transition from farming to Mani Timber, you know, learning about why and how sort of this realm of things, food, sustainability, reclaimed wood. I, it's all connected. It's all connected. I, yeah. I am a big, like, I sew clothes and I only use, like, thrifted fabrics and, you know, all of that That's stuff great. is connected. So. One thing that I feel like the two of you are doing is, going
0: back, you said, going back to the source. And how important is that going back to the source? I mean, not everybody wants to go back to the source because they, first of all, wouldn't even think of going back to the source because they have the finished product and that's it. They don't go any further than that. And you've actually, both of you have taken a deep dive into going back to see where things have come from. And I think that's an explorer kind of attitude or mission, if you will.
1: Let's talk a little bit more about that. About the the sawmill and the process, Maniunk Timber is located along the Schuylkill River, uh, surrounded by old infrastructure. You currently work with both recently cut down trees that tree companies are sourcing you for the most part. But what's amazing and fascinating and wonderful is that you're taking in timber or beams from old warehouses in Philadelphia. Steve, on the website, someone makes the point that they might be three to five hundred years old and I, I don't doubt that you have methods for calculating how old they are. But let's talk about those sources. A massive piece of wood is coming in from a factory demolition from the sixteenth century. What have you learned about milling something from that might actually be from fifteen twenty five? That's mind boggling. Give us some context. Yeah, as you literally have history in your hands.
2: You know, I was in the beginning I'd cut this wood and I was just looking for perfection. I knew it was old. It was always what I wanted. But as you cut it and you see the age and the history, it's just, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to explain. It's usually the color that I'm always amazed at. I don't look at the grain too much anymore unless it's really, really out there, but it took me a long time to realize how striking the color is, but that's really what I'm into now. And and uh, the wood should be really more prized than it is because of its its properties, its age, its history is already there. So you're already starting with two really good things with wood. Anybody who works wood would rather have an old piece of wood than a new one. And then you go from there. You know, it's just, it's great. I mean... Uh, yeah, I'm totally addicted to it. Maybe that's why I went back in time, you know, because these trees that they cut back then, the beams are so large that they didn't take much off the tree. So really what I'm getting is what they seen. So that's always interesting. You know, whoever cut this stuff in 1880, they sent it to Philadelphia already squared, probably. Okay. It could have been finished here, but that's really exciting to know that, you know, I don't really know who cut this wood. Was it the first generation of freed slaves that worked in in the southern forest? Because it was hard, back-breaking work. And uh, there's not too many pictures, but yeah, I, I think about it a lot.
0: For our listeners, when you talk about squaring, that would be taking off the bark yes. and making the inside or the, the heart of the wood that doesn't include the bark is what you're talking about when you're squaring it. just so our listeners understand.
2: Yeah, that that specific product was called, uh, they would send up a boxed heart. And that's all it was, is that they would cut off the sapwood and send up here just the best part of the log. And then afterwards, it, it could have been finished here or it could have been already finished down there. Do you have a
1: sense of what those dimensions would be of the heart log? Are they like 20 by 20 or?
2: Yeah, I would think at least that size because they were cutting the tops of the trees for the beams, not the bottom of the tree. The bottom of the tree had clear lumber and they saved that for a higher product. So, yeah, I was getting we've had some pieces that had three or four hundred rings, but that's at the top of the tree. So the bottom of the tree could have had another three or four hundred rings. We'll never know, because you know trees get what one hundred and twenty feet, one hundred and thirty feet, and we're only getting twenty feet. You know, so it
3: was really cool to see to imagine how big the tree was, though, because some, some beams you can just really picture it. Whether it's because the pith, which is the center of the tree, um, yeah. you know, the pith is just in the right place in the beam where you can kind of like gauge. Oh wow, like. The tree that they cut this in from must have been really massive. Yeah.
0: Or, or you'll see resistant wood in the in the tree if it was on an, a windy side of, right. of the woodland, or yeah. if you know if it's if it's in the center of the woodland, you'll have less of that resistant wood. So you'll have uh, a really beautiful, cleaner. Won't be as sure. unusual to look at.
3: Sure. will sure. <laughs> yeah. so be what,
0: what they what they classify f- for as today, but. Trying to you know think back to that time period. there there are books uh, over in Europe that talk about when the first settlers came here. They were so shocked at how big the trees were that they wrote back right away. and this is how England wound up wanting even more to hold on to the colonies because they were using all the wood for shipbuilding and masts. and that was critical for how the British became so famous on the sea because of the colonies here using all the timbers. And to me, that's really fascinating too. And you're going back so far and you're talking about these old timbers. It just blows my mind.
2: Yeah, yeah. When I think back about certain demolition sites I was on, they were building a high rise a little bit north of the Ben Franklin Bridge right on the river and the guy called me goes man we're 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 pulling out 30 40 and 50 foot trees here come on down so i go down and and there's a an archaeologist architect there and he, he told me that at that spot in around 1750 there was a very famous ship mast provider what they did is they brought the white pine in from Pennsylvania and they I guess they stripped it and they would ship it out right off this warehouse or this basically dock. And I was freaking out because they were pulling out not giant pieces of white pine, but let's say 30 inches in diameter. And the ends were all cut by hand with an axe. Or not all of them. You know, they were cut with a cross-cut saw, but sometimes maybe they didn't have enough cross-cut So some of them were actually axed through. So that you have seen like, you know, two or 300 chop marks. And I wanted to get the tree out of there, but I ended up not really getting one stick of lumber out of the place because it had been sitting in the muck so long. It was just one color and it was gray. Hmm. It was stained really bad. And the project was worth too much money for them to slow down and, and load up a load of this wood for me. And of course, it was totally submerged for so long. It was waterlogged, which would have been fine, but it just goes to show that like your little story about shipmasts and what England was taking out of here, that was a very, very high-end product that was being shipped out of Philadelphia even then. You really couldn't make a boat without a mast. That was the most one of the most important parts of shipbuilding. So there it was, all buried. When you
1: speak about the color, Steve, um, what, what... Describe to our listeners what colors you're seeing.
2: Out of the the beams that we cut today? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind it's of hard to describe, but it's always a deep color. If it's yellow, it's a deep yellow. If it's red, it's a deep red. You know, white pine can be pretty boring, but we get some really beautiful, you know, like a butter color pine that, that comes out or kind of a reddish pine. It's probably because it's so old, even though it hasn't been hit by light in the middle of the tree or the bean. I can't explain it. It doesn't look like new wood, that's for sure. Even in a big tree that we saw now, same thing. It it might be a 90 year old tree, but it doesn't have the color of a three or four or 500 year old piece of wood, you know? I see. I was going to pose a question to Rebecca since you're coming
1: out of the sustainability uh, uh, field there. And what insights you might have in terms of what all this urban wood reclamation and and uh, recently cut log reclamation, how does that play into to the bigger picture? And, and why should a tree company think about bringing logs to you rather than, you know, sending them out to the landfill? Yeah, um,
3: that's a good question. I think that kind of like a conundrum that I think we come across almost every day, um, especially recently where the city of Philadelphia is trying to figure out what to do with all of the trees that are falling, whether it's from insect
1: Infestation, yeah. Estrogen, emerald ash borer. Right? Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Or, you know, some whatever. Um, there's a million trees that fall and come down and have to be cut down every day. And so there's a constant I would say a constant job concern, worry about where do they go, what happens, you know, what what are the next steps in the process to figure out what to do with all of this material? Yeah, um, and many young timber and places like us all around the country and the world are just part should be part of that equation, um, and unfortunately, we're often overlooked and not really part of the conversation as, um, you know, they try and get us involved, but I think that there's a lot of missed opportunity. You know, they kind of want to lump everything together. So, like, if Man Young Timber was to be a resource for the city, we would also have to figure out what to do with, like, all of the lower quality wood that you can't make furniture out of, for example. We would have to be the ones to figure out how to store an immense amount of lumber. Um, we, like a lot of getting far away from your question, but um, I think that um, it's important for cities and, and companies and tree companies and, and plant people, tree care people, demolition people, developer people to... Take into consideration places like Many Young Timber because, one, they can figure out a way to mitigate some costs that it would take to throw away a huge amount of waste because we, we buy it. So not only will they not have to throw that wood away and pay to do that, but they could possibly come out on the other side. Um, right. Would it be helpful if there was
0: somebody like yourself going around to different tree companies that are removing trees and say, this one's good, this one's not, this one's good, this one's not. In other words, someone who could actually make the call right on the ground when the tree is coming down, you can actually see it and you can determine whether it's going to go for chipping, whether it's going to go for mulch, whether it's going to go, whatever it's going to go for. And if you had somebody like that, it would really expedite the uh, process. But also think about that chain, like you were saying, there's this long chain of where things have to go it would expedite that and cut a lot of costs down not only from putting things into landfill but also helping you as a sawmill to pick the best ones that can go to you for yeah. your work that's going to give the best end product because you yeah. don't
3: want you don't want an inferior product at the end right right that's really important and we don't want to be responsible for figuring out, what to do with quote everything else because we just don't have the resources the literal space and honestly the money or time to do that so yeah that would be ideal if we could be on the scene but it's just steve and i you know so maybe maybe there could be
0: maybe there could be people that are trained to be graders yeah uh, right on 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 the site maybe uh a, a new class can form where you're creating graders that yeah. will, will know what you're looking for and say, nope, this is what this they want. No, they don't want
3: that. Yeah, I think that would be an awesome job for the city to create as a professional job because then from the get, they can organize their materials and possibly stop the issue, which I know they're having now, of kind of like creating just like a dump for everything and they're always asking Steve for a long time now, um, you know, can you come down and like look at what we have? And it's kinda like, yeah, maybe like twenty percent of these trees we can use or less actually. But how do we get them? How do we choose them? How do we, you know,
2: where do we go? She's only talking about the city. Most trees are taken down by private companies. Most private companies are like Two people, you know, there might be a little bit larger companies that maybe have a yard and they can store 20 to 30 trees because, you know, they're not stupid either. They might be able to chip the branches and all that stuff, but they want to get rid of the logs whole so they don't have to handle them a lot. There's very many layers of where these trees are. And there would have to be just in the city of Philadelphia, you would probably need 10 many young timbers just to hmm. handle the private trees, the amount. Let Fairmount Park deal with them. But all the rest of the trees that people have to take down, and this is not even including the suburbs, where most of the trees are to begin with. So, yeah, I mean, you would, the infrastructure would employ thousands and thousands of people. But we don't make stuff like that anymore. You know, we don't make a whole lot of stuff by hand. But that doesn't mean it, it, it wouldn't you know, or you couldn't, it would have to grow slowly. And yeah, I don't know. You know, you have to remember wood is a really, really competitive product. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's really competitive. We can't compete with upstate Pennsylvania. They can cut wood more in a month than we do in two years. You know what I mean? So it's very cheap, actually, wood. We don't even use much in our homes anymore, except for the framing part. You go into somebody's new home and the, the baseboard is two inches high and their trim is very small amount of the total. But that's not to say there, there's a market for all the wood that's laying around and going to landfills. No question. But, you know.
3: Yeah, we, we got a lot of customers that is super grateful that we are located within the city limits because they don't want to go wherever to find the wood that they want to use. But also I was going to say that we get a, a customer where you know they really want to save the tree because they have memories associated with it or for whatever reason, they want to use it. And we saw people's trees to whatever dimension they want all the time. And basically we saw it and then they take it away and they figure out how to dry it, how to stack it, how to do all of that. But we're happy to help people sort of like make a tree that they have into lumber. The issue, though, that that we find probably the most is that, like Steve was saying, the tree company that actually takes it down doesn't really want to have anything to do with the tree after they do that job. So oftentimes the person is left with the tree in their front yard, and unfortunately we don't have a truck where we can go pick up trees or anything. So and we don't move our our mill around and saw in different locations. So once you have a tree down in your yard and the tree guy has left, you know you're in a tight spot. So a lot of people kind of go the dump route or the firewood route or whatever because they can't figure out how to get it from place to place. But yeah, that's just one of the challenges that someone that actually wants to save a tree goes through, not to mention all of the other trees that there's no one sort of standing behind them and and helping and trying to figure out what to do with them. So yeah, there's a lot of frustration. We even have people with a lot of money and a lot of influence come and be like, what do I do? I want to save the trees of... Some wealthier neighborhood that had to take them all down because of wires or whatever, and they can't figure it out. So yeah, yeah. there's there's a there's an issue there that needs to some thinking.
1: <laughs> you seem pretty confident, guys, in identifying the wood that's coming in. I mean, and I'm again I'm speaking about the vintage timbers. Uh, how did you arrive at that confidence? And give us the species list of what usually is coming in as far as those big beams.
2: Yeah, that's it's uh. It's really only three species depending on what decade the building was built. Okay. Before 1880, it was basically white pine and it was two or three stories tall, the mills. That's as tall as they could go. And then around 1880, during reconstruction in the South, they knew about longleaf pine, but they didn't really ever get their hands on it. What really started the American or the Industrial Revolution was wood, because after 1880, they could go to seven to nine story tall mills. So let's say you're, you're making carpeting in the city of Philadelphia, and along comes this wood called longleaf pine. Oh. Pound for pound is stronger than steel. So before you maybe had a two-story little mill. Now you can build a nine-story factory. And so you make all the little houses around the mill and you increase production to such an extent because your footprint is very small. Most of it's up in the sky. So you went from 1880 to about 1900. They cut all the longleaf pine out. And then around 1900, Douglas fir from the West Coast arrived to take its place. And then around 1910, 1920, they invented the steel I beam. And they never really built a tall wooden building again. That was the end of it. And it was steel and concrete after that. So there's a very short window, you know, maybe 50 years, maybe that they built massive wooden buildings, you know. Okay, and just for clarification, so I'm visualizing
1: this correctly, and for our listeners as well, when you speak of, did you say like a nine-story mill or a 12-story mill, what does that mean?
2: Well, you know, if you, there's still a few left in Philly. Um, I have pictures of of the wood that we bought out of, let's say this building at Sixton Brown made actual sales for ships. And it was seven story and it was really, really constructed. Okay. So seven stories up. It was only, you know, let's say a city block square, but it was seven stories. And you, you talk about cutting edge. You know, Philadelphia was the second richest city in the country. So, you know, Philadelphia has some of the richest corporations and they they have the, uh, the reputation of building the best industrial buildings That were built back then like they invented an engineered beam which was only three pieces bolted together but as they went into the tree they could get rid of any defects and then there's only three species so it's to me it's kind of easy to look at a piece of wood even though it's gray and beat up right i know what it is almost immediately you know but then i i have a good memory of where most of the wood came from in my yard i remember the buildings so that's kind of neat, but that's being lost now because a lot of times, you know, they're they're down before we even get the wood. So we don't know the history as clear. Sometimes we—I used to ask the uh, neighbors back in the '80s and '90s. It was really good to get firsthand knowledge what the factory made before it closed in, like let's say, 1965. You know. So that's it for the species. Yeah, they never made mills out of oak. Spruce or any other material, and the Douglas fir. Where was that coming from? Well, you know, once they brought the railroad through, I would imagine California, Oregon, and Washington. Probably not Canada. And the the big white pines. You know, they were Pennsylvania was all cut by the time seventeen ninety. Pennsylvania was basically clear cut. So the the bigger trees came from Minnesota, Wisconsin. Ontario Quebec and then uh, it switched to down south and the longleaf pine forest was so big it basically started at the uh, the eastern shore of Maryland went down to Florida went west to Texas north to Arkansas and then all the way back over to uh, the eastern shore of Maryland it was basically one species of tree even though there was yellow pine slash pine and loblolly it was Virtually all longleaf pine.
0: Now, when did they use chestnut? I know that chestnut was used in barns. but And
2: homes and and almost everything. But chestnut was commercially gone by like, let's say, 1900, 1910. I think the blight really came in.
0: Right, yeah, yeah.
2: But yeah, I, I guess in order to make a mill, since it was designed by professionals, Chestnut trees grew straight. I, I've always wondered why they never made mills out of chestnut oak. I mean, the oak forest along the Mississippi River, you know, it was like 60 miles on either side of the river. For over 1,000 miles, it followed the river. And it was a dense oak forest. You know, I don't know where that wood went. And I've seen pictures of the oak trees. They're, they were just as straight. Maybe not as straight as softwood trees, but, you know,
1: Oh, because of glowing, growing close to each other.
2: Yeah, yeah. And it was, and it was a was virgin timber. All this wood was never cut before the people who first cut it. You know, it just it was the original forest.
1: Right. So, right.
2: So. Do you feel like you've ever
1: had any chestnut come in in any form, American chestnut?
2: Yeah, you know, uh, there was a house on the main line that when they took the stucco off, it was a log cabin, and it turned out to be one of the two or three oldest homes on the main line. And you would never know it because it was surrounded by suburbia. And there was a log that came out of there that was chestnut. Mm. It was old growth. It had many rings, but it wasn't that big. It was like a 12 by 12. And we, we took the nails out it cut it up and they made a dining room table out of it. It was beautiful. So you're talking about how as the
1: availability of a long needle pine stronger than steel allowed the mills to be built to additional stories. Yeah. Right. Right. Within that construction, are these mills that were bricked but used the beams interiorly?
2: Yes. Yes. Okay.
1: And and were the beams interspaced on each floor, or
2: yes. was it only at the roof? No. It was it was each floor, and they were they were not timber frame buildings. They were designed, they changed the design. A lot of things changed around 1880. Before 1880, construction didn't really change too much since the Egyptians. They had mortise and tenon. The joy sat into a pocket on a big wooden beam, which was the way they did it for literally thousands of years. But then they realized through engineering that that was not the way to do a mill. You just wanted to sit the beam on a solid surface, let's say like a brick wall, and then come across, and there's one post in the middle, and then the the beam went to the other wall so that all the pressure was down and there was no joinery involved. And all they did was each floor was a a complete mirror of the next floor. All the weight was distributed on top of each other with very thick flooring. Okay. Mm Yeah. Very descriptive. And, That's great. Yeah. Because a lot of Philadelphia buildings, since they knew, since it has this reputation of superior industrial buildings, we made a lot of cloth in Philadelphia, which meant looms. And these looms were giant cast iron machines, usually around 12 to 13 feet long. And have you ever seen a big steel loom, they were really heavy. And to carry all this weight up, they 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 just knew how to do it.
1: Yeah, even in your Maniunk neighborhood, right? Oh, my God, yeah. The weaving, yes. Yeah, yeah. Before we move on to Miyawaki, I, I did also really appreciate, and our listeners will want to check out the links that are provided on Maniunk Timber because uh, there's really good visual of your very well-organized yard and the inventory of the timbers that we keep speaking about. So you can get an idea of what they look like, and of course you can see the mill in action. Uh, one of the jobs that you did, guys, was with a local brewery, Wissahick and Brewing, uh, in a neighborhood just up river or down river from manioc Timber, called East Falls. And I really thought it was interesting how you repurposed the timber that was coming out of uh, a demolition of Schmidt's Brewing. Can you? Talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite stories. I guess it's like 1984, and I've always been looking for these wooden tanks that everybody knows about on top of factories. Well, I got to thinking that well, they they made beer in wooden tanks. So I literally drove up to Schmidt's. It was abandoned at the time. They were not making beer for pretty long, let's say five or ten years. So I knock on the door and they, I go in and I meet the owner, Billy Flammer. I mean, he was he was a real character. And then I meet a guy named Harry Broadley. And he was, this is 1984. He was probably 85 or 90 years old. He well, was, I was going to say real quickly. So they
1: haven't been making beer for 10 years, but you knock on the door and someone answers the door.
2: Yeah, well, what it is, is Billy Flammer, who got in trouble with the government, he was the biggest retailer of beer in the city of Philadelphia. Mm. You know, he would deliver the beer to all the tap rooms. And he was very famous, and he went and he bought his own brewery. Well, you can't do that. When Prohibition ended, you couldn't make your own beer and distribute it. You you got into too much trouble that way. Well, he he was a pretty hard guy, and he he didn't really want to listen to the authorities. He did eventually go to jail. When he came back out, he still had his office at the brewery, because it was the the, the office part was really nice. It was an art deco building that they built. Schmitz was pretty rich when it was going. So he so I go to Harry Broadley, which was he was the man. He was the guy in charge of making the beer he was a brewer times 10 you know he ordered corn in, in ship in railroad cars he ordered sugar in railroad cars so it was a giant place so he takes me in first he takes me into the uh, the hops room and there was about 18 tanks all a beautiful brown color and they, they were vertical tanks and they were made out of what they would call tidewater red cypress and he told me about the wood. You know, it's it's all waked with beeswax on the inside. And they were around 13 to 15 feet tall, about 15 feet in diameter. A whole room full of this beautiful wood. Coming from Louisiana, you think? Well, Tidewater, again, grew from Maryland oh. all the way to Florida and then up around to Texas, but only in the Tide. That's why they called it Tidewater Red. And so... He, then he brings me into the really the heart of the factory, and is all these, what I've never seen before, horizontal wooden tanks made out of redwood from California. And they all have little brass stickers. They were made around 1910. Same thing with the with the Tidewater Red Cypress Tanks. And, you know, I should have went into deep debt that day, and I should have bought every stick of wood in that place. But, you know, me being not very rich and and not not really having much room you know i I bought a couple thousand sticks of each the redwood was 16 feet long and it was two it's always two and three quarter inches thick and it's between five and seven inches wide whereas the uh the tidewater red it wasn't a larger tree than the redwood but since it was closer the sticks were all two and three quarters, but they could be eight, nine, 10 inches wide. So I was able to buy both of those woods. And then when these breweries started to open 25 years later, all these microbreweries like Wissahick Brewery, I said, look, we can make you the most beautiful countertop in your brewery made by the original staves of Schmidt's Brewery. So that's what we did. We, we machined them, we glued them up. And they told us what size they wanted. And now they have really deep history in their own brewery of actual staves from Schmidt's beer. Did you handle the
1: demolition yourself then down at Schmidt's? Did you have to take those tanks apart? Well, actually
2: they would take them apart. Okay. And then but we would we would carry them out. And like I say, since they are not really big planks, you know, we could handle them. And of course, you know, it was a giant wooden building with huge longleaf pine beams, which we actually never got. When mm-hmm. the building was eventually taken down 20 years later, I didn't get a stick out of the place. It's ironic, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I was in there first 20 years before. But uh, we did our own demo. Actually, I went and got the wood out of Ortlieb's Brewery, too. Oh. And yeah. that was that was sure. actually Jersey Cedar. Again, built around 1910. And that's beautiful wood, too. I have a very little bit of that left.
0: Cameociparis theoides, the Atlantic white cedar.
2: Right, right.
0: That's gorgeous. They used to use it as a um, an indicator plant when the ships would come up the river as to where the fresh water began. Once they saw those, they knew that they could drink the water safely.
2: You know, they used to mine it first. Did you know that? That's interesting. Mine it? Yeah, yeah. When the settlers came across the pine barrens, they could dig down a little bit in the cedar forest, and they would see thousands of logs in, in the mud, right below the surface. So they said, "Ho,sh! This is easier than cutting them down." And of course, it was higher quality wood. It was maybe thousands of years old. Who knew? But they had they had fished it out pretty fast. They they said all the wood in our carpenter's hall is built with it. The original roof to independence fall had a pine barren's dug out cedar wow. so yeah so hand wow. excavating yes wow. the timbers wow.
1: oh my goodness that's a whole new world right there subterranean and harvesting and yeah
2: they they say there's,
0: they after, say there's
2: more trees uh, under the water than on top of the land
0: that doesn't surprise me you know after sandy that that they they were devastated there and the trees can't grow there anymore cuz the salt has inundated the area. So the trees were cut down and milled right there. They had portable yeah. Yeah. mills, brought now, I'm in. I'm talking about
2: if, if the wood can make it into the mud. Into the water. Below mm-hmm. the, the oxygen level, they last hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years just sitting there because they, they can't rot. So that's interesting. And the other thing before we, we go on to another subject is the sustainability of the local trees yes. is unending. There's always going to be trees that are coming down because of storms or because of disease or because of, like Rebecca said, wiring or whatever. So there's, there's no end to them. It's, it's a totally recyclable and reused product really forever. And Matty Young Timber, in the end, will be just trees because the old buildings will be gone or they won't be taking them down anymore. And you just won't get that much wood like you do now. So that's that's the big future right there is the local trees that are the big mills won't touch them because they have hardware in them somebody hammered a nail in them 20 years ago and no one knows it until till we cut into it but that's the future in our time together we've
1: talked about trees you know 500 years old 300 years old the 90 year old sugar maple from the suburbs or whatever and then you just mentioned you know the 1000 year old tree being excavated out of the pine barrens. But I just think about the carbon sequestration, the carbon capture that took place all those years ago and is still in in that wood fiber. And so the reason to have a kitchen table or custom carpentry trim, whatever, in your house is because you're maintaining a process that took place hundreds of years ago. Yeah.
0: Well, changing the subject a little bit, but still in the timber thought process here, where we wanted to find out about your little Miyawaki forest that you built, or a tiny forest that you built on the property uh, where your mill is. Can you can you go into that a little bit and how you made your selections of plants?
2: Yeah, to me, the the, the tiny forest before I even knew of the term, and it was really only last year, but I've been wanting to plant. Basically, a forest that when you walk in Fairmount Park, that's what you see. But I wanted really to do it for education reasons. So when our customers come, they can see like, wow, this is a Pennsylvania forest. You know, we'll have hickory, oak, every tree that that grows in Fairmount Park, I want to grow in our forest. Hell, Hal just brought me some pawpaw trees a couple of months ago. So we'll have those growing. In a, in a few years but when the customers come and they see the trees they see the sawmill they see the wood being dried and then they see the products that we have in our studio they can really see the total a to z but then when they sit in the forest on a bench they can really see how we are where we are you know this this little plot of land can produce so much. And you know how Mother Nature is. It's crazy efficient. You know, if, if you think we're efficient, just look at what they, the, a forest can do. There's a guy who rents a little part of our property. And he said a typical Fairmount Park has a plant every square foot. So we have about 3,500 square feet of the little forest. So we have to get 3,500 plants. And we're only at like a couple hundred. And to think like, how can we fit a couple thousand more here? Well, that's the way Mother Nature does it. It, it crams everything in. Every little space will not stay empty for long. Yeah. What's the dimensions of the of the parcel?
3: I want to say like 75 feet by 50 feet. I think it's about, like Steve said, 3,700 square feet. Nope, that's right. Somewhere around
1: there. Okay. <laughs> um,
3: yeah, it goes along one of the sides of our bays, and then kind of jets out into what used to be the parking area, and then kind of returns back around um, and makes this beautiful rectangle with two entrances, access two different access points to inside the building through the forest. So we send customers out, you know, and they get to walk through the forest with their kids and whatever. It's really fun, and then. Um, yeah, so we, we have every, we have some black locust trees, you know, that was really cool that our tenant is a plant tree nursery guy. And he, he found us some cool trees that are actually hard to find, um, because no, no one cares about them. Like, you know, just some like native evergreens and stuff like that. Um, right. Yeah, we got some white cedar.
2: We got a beach tree. Anything that in Fairmount Park—that's where we're headed for. Yeah. We haven't gotten any osage orange yet, but you know, I want to get trees that are really about, yeah, <laughs> catalpa trees. Well, you really can't buy a nurseries don't grow catalpa.
0: I know a nursery that does. Oh, really? Send us <laughs> so the info. Many had a hard time getting rid of them because people sure. don't buy yeah. a catapas. Yeah. But, you know, they're a beautiful tree in really there. Yeah. They're excellent wood, too. The wood's beautiful
2: inside there. Yeah. Persimmon, what do you want?
3: Um, we're going to have some, you know, we're going to have some apple trees, some food food producing trees. Steve has a big peach orchard on his personal property. So we're hoping to... I want to grow some raspberries. I don't know. Yeah. So I feel like we have some big guys in there, some red oaks and some white oaks and some beautiful magnolias and big holly trees. So we have some nice anchor points, but we're going to focus more. We're going to get more trees, obviously, but then we're also going to focus on the understory with mountain laurels and azaleas, and we have rosebuds, witch hazel. We have some beautiful pussy willow. We have a hackberry. We have bayberries. We have um, a really cool assortment. So we're going to try and focus on the understory. And then I'm really excited this summer to experiment with growing Succulents, catnip, rosemary, lavender. On on our, we have a concrete wall that Steve and I and some other people built. That we we repurposed the concrete that we pulled up from the parking lot. That the forest is now on. We built this three foot high, beautiful sort of rubble wall, and I'm going to grow plants and native succulents and. Mosses all over it. So I'm excited about that part.
0: They call they call that urbanite. Yeah, yeah. Urbanite.
3: Urbanite, That's that's the saleable name for repurposed concrete. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, and it's nice. It's clean and it's it's about five the pad was about five inches thick. Um so now I just have to find plants that really like calcium. (laughs) (laughs) There you go.
1: What was your uh, soil medium? Uh, was real heavy
2: clay.
3: Clay. But The entire place where our mill is was built on backfill. Yeah. From dad, you can de- you can describe it better, but I think it was ash. Was
2: backfill, and then before they pour this huge pad, concrete pad, they covered it with probably six inches of it looks like impervious clay. You know, it, would be, it wasn't, it was whatever they brought in so they could roll it real smooth before they laid the concrete. That's why they would pick clay. And then on top of the clay, we brought in, I don't know how many yards of, quote, topsoil. And it, the topsoil had manure in it and uh, a fair amount of organic matter. It, it wasn't real, truly topsoil because we weren't really growing vegetables or food. We were just trying to grow a forest. And so we have about, what, Rebecca, around six or seven inches of topsoil. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're probably going to have to experiment with that clay underneath that maybe won't let the water go through. So some plants will do really well. And then other plants will have to watch. You know, like a holly mostly grows in sandy soil, but there's no sandy soil here. So we'll have to watch that that doesn't get too much moisture, you know. So... It's certainly interesting how many more plants that we need. And so it's, I would like to get some mushrooms growing too. I don't know how you do that, but. You
0: have to seed with spores. You can do that, it's very easy. We did that at the university with yeah. my students. They had a ball doing it too. Um, but we have to ask our favorite question, which is, cause we're coming up on the hour here, and we want to find out which trees you're kind of resonating with these days Rebecca, let's hear from you
3: first, and then we'll hear from Steve. Which stream I'm resonating with. Well, this time of year, the polonias on our property are about to bloom, and they are awesome. They smell so good, and Mm -hmm. they have a beautiful flower, so I'm really looking forward to that. That's a good. That's a good one. That's a, it. Has a really great fragrance that yeah. you mentioned. It really the fragrance really takes over the whole yard, even over the smell of the of the wood um, and the and the milling. And it's it's really something. Um, it's one of my favorite times of year at the lumber yard. That's that's the first one we've had somebody say <laughs> polonia. and I ju- I, I yeah, totally love polonia yeah. too. Yeah. I just yeah. think, oh. I love it. it's one tree we don't have to plant because it's yeah. already there. <laughs>
2: Yeah, a good old invasive yes. species, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the wood. Uh, other than that, the wood is very interesting. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm cutting it more and more, and the uses of it are unbelievable. But I have two favorite trees that never really slow down: is any kind of cedar tree and any kind of fruit tree. Like right now, I, if I turn around, I can look at my crab apple tree, which has green leaves. First and then the flower comes out and it's nothing but this magenta, beautiful. The whole thing is magenta. Mm -hmm. And then right next to that is a pear tree and it's got this beautiful white flower. And like Rebecca said, I have, I have like a little mini orchard over here of around 40 peach trees, which are now just ending. They're different than the apple trees. They or the pear trees, they don't produce leaves first. They produce this flower first and they have this beautiful pink flower that then starts dying and is being replaced by this beautiful light green leaf. So they're they're my, any fruit tree and any cedar tree, that's basically where I'm at.
0: That's exciting. Those are answers we have not had (laughs) yet. (laughs)
2: That's good. Yeah.
0: Well, we appreciate all the time you've taken with us today and we wish you continued success and and hopefully people will uh, take to heart as to how we can save more of our urban timber and maybe even create classes and in finding people who want to do grading of wood so that you know you get what you need and everybody else gets what they need and it makes it easier for everyone in the long run
1: yeah and I i think one quick closing comment is, you know, we know the wood is there, as you guys have pointed out, that the the vintage timber is going to go away, but there's no end to locally harvested trees. But for the marketing equation, what has to happen is that the building trades and the contractors, they have to start thinking about heading over to Maniunk Timber and similar businesses rather than yeah. hustling to the big box store. Because it's easy to, to slip in and get what you need in terms of plantation or farmed timber from the South. Everyone grumbles about the plywood and the two-by-fours and things like that. But to really make it a instant connection of, I'm going to buy vintage repurposed wood for my client
2: rather than going the easy route. Yeah. I mean, that would be one marketing strategy for sure, you know? Yeah.
0: Local sourcing and that sustainability in the forefront.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. And good luck to Manny Young Timber and continued success.
0: It was great meeting you. Great meeting you.
1: See you in the neighborhood. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California.